Jeremy started his career as an intern for The Hill. Since then, he's gained many valuable skills. Jeremy's worked in the privacy consulting sector. He is now BDO's data protection director. So on today's podcast, I am thrilled to be joined by Jeremy Berkowitz. He is the privacy and data protection director at BDO. Thanks for joining the podcast, Jeremy. Of course. Happy to be here, Noah. Excellent. So uh, you grew up um, near New York uh, in northern New Jersey. So talk about growing up. Uh, did you come out of the womb thinking that uh, you'd be working in privacy? Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, I kind of, uh, I mean, I was a pretty good student throughout, you know, kind of uh, middle school, high school. I, I for whatever reason, I thought I would be going into engineering in college. Um, and I actually started at the University of Michigan as an engineering major. Um, I think like a lot of people um, could go in, you know, with an idea of what that is. Um, they, they kind of quickly hit reality that it's a lot of math and science. Um, and it, it's just after, I think, a semester, I decided um, that um, a, a, it, it was not for me um, and I switched to a, uh, a liberal arts major uh, majoring in English um, and English literature um, but I also spent a lot of time at uh, the, uh, the college uh, newspaper the Michigan Daily where I was a reporter and an editor there for uh, three years really thought I'd be going into journalism in college um, after college um, graduated in uh, from Michigan in 2005 so Fascinating. So before we get uh, to your college years there at, at uh, the state of the, the school of north, as they say at uh, Ohio State, yeah. um, we'll start in, in, in New Jersey. Did you have any like high school jobs, uh, anything like that? I was a camp counselor for uh, a few summers um, at the uh, day camp where I had uh, I had attended when um, had been to when I was younger. Um, so I did that. Um, I was uh, later very briefly um so just kind of uh, nothing too exciting just random uh, <laughs> random jobs i think a lot of teenagers have interesting so then talk about uh when, when you went to college uh university of michigan so why did you uh end up there and and you got in a little bit uh that you worked at the newspaper but uh, just in general talk about the, that experience there uh, yeah, I mean, I love Michigan. I uh, was a number of school, one of a number of schools that I applied to, um, again, thinking that I wanted to um, um, go in as an engineering major. They then, um, as of now, still have one of the best engineering programs in the country, um, uh, the uh, top five, uh, usually. Um, plus, it's, it's, it's Michigan. I mean, I, I remember being so impressed the, the couple times I went out to Ann Arbor my junior year of high school and then later on uh, my senior year of high school where I actually stayed with a friend of mine over the weekend there. So plus the academics and just a, a great environment. Um, you know, I, I knew uh, when I had come back after that second trip, my senior year of high school, that this was the school for me. Um, and it, it, was, it, it was a wonderful four years there. Um, and yeah, I had 
gone in with the expectation again that I think what thought I would be, um, you know, graduate there with an engineering degree and maybe, you know, go, go in that field. And then um, I, you know, decided to make a switch, um, uh, you know, midway through my first semester to um, transfer into the literature science and art school and ended up being a, 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 a terrific decision, being able to major in English, but also take a lot of poli science history classes and also being able to be uh, part of the, the Michigan Daily, which is one of the oldest student newspapers in the country and one of the most highly regarded. Um, and that was that was really my, you know, a good part of my college experience. Wow. So when you were there, uh, you interned uh, for The Hill at that time? I did. I interned for The Hill newspaper in the summer of 2004. Interesting. So talk about uh, that experience. Um, that was, it was, The Hill is, there are a few newspapers that are exclusively tailored to cover probably DC. Um, you know, let, yes, the White House, but everyone covers the White House, but really focused on covering Congress. Um, one of them is Roll Call. Um, the other big one, which is probably more well-known is Politico, but Politico was not around in 2004. In 2004, it really was National Journal, Roll Call, and The Hill. Um, and I would say then The Hill was probably was still a good-sized paper, but it was a little smaller. Um, it only came out three days a week. Um, and I worked with a, um, got to, you know, an intern there, actually. I, I, I give credit for getting that internship. I had actually won a, a journalism award based on some articles I had I had. Um, written at the Michigan Daily. And when I had sent that to the hiring manager, he said, okay, you know, he, I think he was going to hire me anyway, but he said, no, this is terrific. We're, uh, we're, we're excited to welcome you for the summer. Um, and so I learned a little bit about, you know, how journalists cover Capitol Hill. Um, they kind of threw me in, asked me to, to write stories for them. Um, and got to work with some terrific people, um, a couple of whom I still uh, stay in touch with today. So you also interned uh, for quite a few different uh, political campaigns. Talk about uh, that experience. Yeah, this was kind of after my senior year of college and a little bit after when I decided to made decided to make a move to move away from journalism a little bit and to kind of go onto the other side, trying to venture, you know, career as a staffer on political campaigns. Um, I worked very briefly um, on the uh, Kerry campaign as a as a field organizer in Florida, really kind of the bottom run of a camp of a campaign um, uh, for anyone. Um, but obviously, it was a fun experience for a few months. Um, and then, uh, then, then uh, uh, President Bush, President Bush won re-election. Um, Senator Kerry lost, obviously. Um, and then um, went back to school to graduate. Went back to D.C. for the summer interned in Congress for a uh, senator then by the name of Byron Dorgan, um, who uh, was a senator from a Democratic senator from North Dakota. Um, and then I ended up working um, in the, ended up getting a job um, at the Export Import Bank, which is a uh, independent agency here in DC um, that's focused on encouraging um, um, you know, U.S. companies to export products ab ab abroad. Um, and I worked there for a man named um, 
Max Cleland, who had been a senator from Georgia, had lost in 2002, but then had been um, had lost re-election in 2002, but then had been appointed uh, by President Bush um, as a uh, one of the directors there. Now you may wonder, you know. Max Cleland was a Democrat, President Bush was a Republican. Most federal agencies in Washington are structured in a way where presidents are required to nominate, um, you know, have a nominate a, a couple people who are of the other of the other political party. Um, and so I worked there for about a year and a half, really working for um, for, for Max, for Senator Cleland, still called him Senator Cleland, even though he was Director Cleland. Uh, he was a fascinating man, had uh, been a, uh, um, a veteran of certain Vietnam where he was injured by a grenade, uh, grenade rendering him a triple amputee. He later had an incredible career as, uh, as a uh, the uh, VA administrator under President Carter, and then later on the career as a senator, um, he, he just passed away last year. Um, but he was a, a terrific man, a great mentor of mine, um, and I was uh, was very proud to be able to work for him for what was about a year and a half, two years, until I started law school in uh, the fall of two thousand seven. Wow, interesting. So, uh, um, and you also were, were working with uh, the U.S. Export and import bank. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, again, a, 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 it is a federal agency that is required to um, um, that is focused on approving loans for um, U.S. companies to be able to export um, goods overseas. Um, it's an agency that has come under a lot of uh, some controversy over the years. Uh, particularly by Republicans um, who are who think that it's just you know free giveaway for uh, large companies and entities who don't really uh, need them anymore. Um, it, it actually was almost <laughs> almost shut down in the early 1980s. Um, but then there was a, a congressman from Washington State named Norm Dix who um, lobbied his party hard and other members of Congress hard to um, you know deny President Reagan the chance to essentially you know uh, deauthorize, close down this. Agency, um, Congressman Dix, part of his district was uh, was Boeing, um, um, so they were big constituents of his, and they relied on loans to be able to um, export their you know, airplanes and other equipment that they that they manufactured all over the world. Um, so you know the the it's overseen by a board of directors, five people, you know, uh, five people, one of whom is a chairman. The chairman is usually the uh, um, of the president's party, and they're responsible for overseeing the operations of the bank and uh, managing, um, uh, you know, approving certain types of loans and meeting with different uh, in different groups that are interested in applying for loans or other company or other countries that are interested in um, encouraging U.S. companies to be able to export goods to uh, to those countries. So it was a uh, it, it, it was an entry level position, um, you know, for, uh, you know, someone who's 22, 23 years old um, and, and, and a fun place to be able to start my career. Fascinating. So then, uh, as you said, in, tw in uh, 2007, you started law school in, uh, in, in the D.C. area at Catholic University uh, Columbus School of Law. So talk about that decision uh, to end up there and, and I guess to go to law school generally, were you planning on going to law school when you graduated um, from, from Michigan and and uh, talk about that decision. Yeah, that can, probably came about my first years, the two years between I graduated college and started law school. Um, I, I, I honestly thought it would be a, I always had an interest in 
you know, law, history, and political science, I thought it would be a good natural fit uh, of a career. I also thought necessarily, as I, you know, spent some spent a little bit of time in Washington, um, that I saw a lot of people who had law degrees who weren't practicing law for the rest of their lives because they saw that they, you know, they went to work on Capitol Hill or they were government lawyers or they went to trade associations. Um, I thought it would be, you know, it would serve me well, even if I didn't necessarily want to practice law for the rest of my life, I thought it would serve me well. Um, um, and I knew I wanted to stay in the DC area. I thought there would be a time where I might end up, um, um, you know, working during the day and going to school at night, um, and that therefore it'd be beneficial for me to kind of stay still in an area where I'd already start to build up a little bit of a professional career and a life. Um, and, um, you know, Catholic at the time, um, they had a couple interesting programs, a few interesting specialty programs, one of which was the Communications Law Institute, which um, I ended up specializing in. Uh, they frankly also gave me the most money. <laughs> so it ended up being, a, um, even though I didn't end up uh, ended up going into their daytime program, um, it made the, the most sense at the time for kind of the issues that I was interested in. Um, and then the, um, uh, um, you know, also just financially. Interesting. Uh, so you had some really fascinating internships when you were there. You uh, worked at, I guess you, your first internship was at uh, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. So talk about that internship and I guess uh, kind of go through all those different experiences uh, that you had in law school. Sure. Um, I mean, early on, I thought I had gotten some advice to you know, take a look at the Communications Law Institute, but as well as some of the other kind of these specialty programs that Catholic um, uh, was, was known for offering and are still known for offering. Um, communications Law interested me probably because I had a bit of a journalism background and so I was interested in First Amendment issues. Um, I was told early on that it's actually a, such a small piece of communications law, kind of First Amendment that uh, media that, you know, it'd be good to, if as, I was in a program that encouraged um, people to get internships starting in their 2L year to try to have at least one a semester. Fortunate enough to be in a, in a city where there are so many opportunities to be able to do that. Um, and really by the second year of law school, you have so much flexibility in terms of how you schedule classes and you know where you can go that you're able to structure your time where you're on campus two days a week and then maybe you're doing an internship you know, two, two days or maybe, you know, two, you know, a, a day and a half per, per week also. Um, but I interned um, at the FCC. Um, you know, we have so many alumni of the school who have ended up um, practicing communications law, um, either at law firms, a large number at the FCC as well. I ended up in the wireless bureau there my summer after my first year. Um, learned a lot about, you know, kind of how so much about issues around spectrum and um, you know, wireless broadband. Um, there were a lot of debates going on at the commission that summer, some, some of which are still going on today. Um, um, and um, I, I started to learn a lot about a really interesting area of law, started to build up some good um, friendships and mentorships with people who worked at the FCC um, and elsewhere. Um, you know, some of whom have become colleagues, some have even become clients over, over the long term. Um, and, and then continued that uh, throughout kind of my second and third year of law school, uh, spending a little bit of a time at a, at a smaller firm, um, going back to intern at a government agency that, uh, the, uh, at the Department of Commerce within the um, National Telecommunic Telecommunications and Information Administration, 
uh, the summer between my second and third year um, and spending my the most of my third year uh, working wasn't really full-time, but wasn't really part-time either, um, but probably about 30 hours per week um, at a lobbying firm um, that was represented at that time. It was a big deal. It was um, representing a number of clients who were applying for broadband stimulus funding. This was right after President Obama, um, the economy was in the tank. President Obama had signed um, the uh, the American Recovery, um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act early in 2009. There were large uh, pots of money allocated to the Department of Commerce and the Department of Agriculture to uh, provide grants and loans for companies who were seeking to expand broadband service in unserved and underserved areas. Um, and so the firm who I was at, where I was at, um, a couple of principals who had both worked in those agencies during the Clinton administration, in the Clinton administration, represented a number of clients um, applying for that funding. Um, and so it's a fascinating experience for a year um, and um, led to, uh, you know, get into a little bit, kind of led to it, it really my next opportunity after graduating. Interesting. Yeah. So let's uh, jump into that. So you started there uh, after graduating in consulting at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. So, uh, you know, talk about that experience. Did you end up sitting uh, for the bar? I did sit for the bar. Um, I sat for the bar. I passed the bar. I am a, I am a licensed attorney in the state of Maryland. Um, it, it was a very tough job market 2009-2010. Um, in terms of opportunities for lawyers, in terms of opportunities to be able to summer at big firms. Um, and I, fortunately for me, I built up some work experience, um, but I had one of my bosses at the, uh, one of my boss's colleagues at the small lobbying firm I was working at, working at had ended up going over to Booz Allen actually when I was studying for the bar. Um, and she actually first, um, you know, there were maybe some opportunities about my taking her place, her for taking her place in the job that she had just left. Uh, but right around the time, right after I took the bar, she said to me, um, you know, she reached out to me, she said, I have a better idea. I, I'm, I'm over at Booz Allen right now. Um, there are actually are, they've hired a lot of attorneys recently. It's not a legal job, but they're looking for people with your type of background to help support clients on some of the broadband issues that you've been working on, or in particular at the time at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so I, I went for an interview um, and liked it. And I started there in fall 2010 um, as a consultant, um, consulting with a, a, a small agency within uh, the Department of Homeland Security called the Office of Emergency Communications. Um, this had been a, an entity that had been stood up after, uh, after Hurricane Katrina, when they realized that there needed to be some better um, services provided, some better coordination among the federal government, among provided emergency communications, um, among you know, kind of the types of public safety networks that agency, public safety agencies were using and the types of equipment they were using to be able to communicate with each other. Um, and, and that was the start of my, uh, that was the start of my consulting career. Fascinating. So at that point in time, you still hadn't really touched privacy world. Um, and was it in that consulting career that uh, you started to first, by the way, I guess, when, when was the time that you first started to, to think about privacy and, and work in some of those issues? Sure. Um, I spent a few years at um, kind of supporting OEC um, and got to work at a, a, on a variety of issues, really um, emergency communications and starting a little bit more in the cybersecurity space. Um, 
I found that I actually enjoyed the consulting world a lot, um, but I was looking for some changes. Um, one, maybe to move probably outside the government consulting world and move more into commercial private sector consulting. Um, and, you know, two, to be able to work on issues that had a little bit more, you know, kind of a, a, a broader reach. And I had started working on um, some cyber security work kind of toward the middle, the end of my time at DHS. Um, in particular, there was a department, uh, the entity of the Department of Commerce called NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, had put together a cybersecurity framework um, around the 2013-2014 time period, essentially a framework that allowed private sector companies to be able to assess their cybersecurity readiness. From there, and I had done a little bit of work on with that, and then from there, NIST had also decided to put together a subsequent privacy risk management framework a few years later. Um, but it was really a desire to get into Booz Allen's um, growing commercial practice because uh, they had sold off their uh, initial commercial uh, practice probably back in 2008, 2009, and we're looking to regrow it. Um, and, you know, through, you know, some meetings I had had that I did, got to know some people in the growing privacy practice at Booz Allen. Um, and over time, I had the ability to be able to start to work with them first on some proposals and marketing materials, and then actually work with them on some engagements. And that happened around the, the kind of the 2014 uh, time period or so. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that really was when uh, privacy first started to, to kick off, but you've been working in the tech uh, law sector for quite some time. Was it sort of a logical transition? Uh, it, it was. Um, I mean, I think you'll, you'll see, you know, with privacy, um, as you're aware, um, it's helpful to have a legal background, um, particularly when you're trying to dig a little bit deeper into some of the provisions around GDPR. Uh, now, through the firms I've worked with, I've had to be very clear that even though I am an attorney, I'm not your, you know, with clients, I'm not your attorney. So we, you know, we always have to be careful about, you know, going, not crossing a certain line in terms of providing legal advice. Um, but it, it was a pretty easy transition, um, I think, over to really start to get involved with cybersecurity and then privacy issues over uh, over time, and then move, really move more into that space. Um, uh, because you know, uh, privacy, when it comes down to it, as complicated as can, it can be, it really comes down to a few basic principles. You know, the, you know, giving giving notice to your customers about the types of data that you're that you're collecting and processing about them, having certain types of technical controls in place to protect that data, um, um, giving your customers the right to be able to, to know what there is being processed about them, to be able to access and, and request deletion of that data, um, you know, knowing, having controls in place regarding the, the transfer of that data, both within a company or, or outside of it. Um, <laughs> and then, you, you know, from there, you, you build out the, the kind of the controls necessary to be able to support those principles. But the, 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 those concepts are, are, are pretty basic. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Now, you know, so, so you're a, uh, you said for the bar, but uh, for folks that are maybe in law school thinking about working in privacy consulting, do you feel like that's uh, necessary? And and has that benefited you that that you are Bart, or, or uh, you know, give your your opinion on that? I think in all the firms I've worked with, it's always been helpful to kind of know to see that that I have that on my resume. Um, one, I, I was never, I didn't know 
you know, I did not have a job nailed down like a lot of people I graduated with at, at that time, at that time, did not have a job nailed down right after graduation. So I knew I was going to sit for the bar. There, were, there was no way that I was going after three years of law school that I was just going to kind of to, to, to blow this off. I wanted that credential on my resume. So I think it's important. I think it's still something that, you know, it's still something I think that garners some, it's just necessary, no, but I think being able to show that you went to law school, that you did sit, that you did sit for the bar, that you passed it, it's, um, it, it allows you to build up some credibility um, with clients, particularly when they're looking at different firms and the experiences that people have. Um, it, it can be, it can be, I've noticed it's helpful that when they when they kind of see some of the bios of potential engagement leaders and engagement teams that you know having having one or two people who who do have that experience um, is 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 a positive. Interesting. So now after uh, six years at uh, your first job after graduation, you moved to Deloitte. So uh, talk about that transition. Why you decided to move on and uh, that those those two years between twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen uh, Deloitte. Yeah, I mean, Booz Allen was um, terrific, um, but they, um, there was their, their commercial practice, particularly their privacy practice, was still, um, there were still some challenges in terms of growing it. Um, and so there was never, quite never enough work for me there. I was, you know, there was some encouragement for me to maybe just go back into the, and go back to government consulting. And that's not what I really wanted to do. Um, and so, I started looking around at some other opportunities um, and uh, was was fortunate enough to get an offer from Deloitte um, to go there in 2016. Um, you know, the, the, I, I started there in their government practice. Actually, NIST was a client of mine, um, but I had a little bit more flexibility to work on commercial team on, on commercial projects, engage in certain marketing. Uh, in kind of certain marketing efforts. And then the understanding was that after about six months, a year, um, I would uh, be able to request a transfer into the, into one of their commercial practices. Um, and it actually happened probably about nine months after, um, um, after I started at Deloitte. So uh, I was there for two years. Um, it's a terrific firm. Um, I think the big four, uh, for, for people who really like consulting, I don't think you can go wrong with uh, with the big four, um, or you know, um, in terms of you know having some experience there, and in terms of the types of training that they can offer you and teaching you how to be a consultant. Um, they they really do put a lot of uh, Deloitte in particular really does put a lot of energy into that. Um, and I was there for about two years. I ended up the practice I transferred into was a more of a. Uh, um, it was a little bit more cybersecurity focused, um, but it was one of their audit practices. Again, working with clients on, on different types of um, NIST and SOC two type audits, uh, but the, but there was a privacy component to it, um, and so I, I was able to kind of be the the, the, the privacy guy on one of these teams all at the same time, being able to bolster some of some of my expertise on, on more security related issues. Interesting. Um, so let's start now. It, you, you moved on from that to, uh, for, for four years at uh, an IBM company called Promontory. So talk about uh, that transition. Um, and I guess a little bit about the company for folks that aren't familiar and then, uh, what you did there. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I was very happy at Deloitte. Um, I'd say early mid 2018, I, I knew I was up for a promotion later that summer. Um, 
but I, I got reached out to by a recruiter um, who told me a little bit about, about Promontory. Um, Promontory by background um, the, had been founded um, by a man named uh, Gene Ludwig back in 2003, 2004. Uh, now, Gene Ludwig had been a um, at, at the Department of Treasury, um, part of the Department of Treasury during the Clinton administration in a role called Comptroller of the Currency, which is really the, the top banking regular one of the top banking uh, regulator regulatory agencies. Um, after he had left um, government, he had started his own financial services type consulting firm. Um, and uh, I think really it, it was really the UA with some of their um, European UK banks, probably about 2011, 2012, a lot of the promontory people there started to hear from some from some clients like we're having trouble understanding some of these privacy issues. These were this is just when GDPR negotiations were starting. Um, you know, what can you tell us about this? I think the firm then saw a need to be able to grow a privacy practice. Um, they hired a couple of former Deloitte people from uh, in the UK to lead up that practice there in the 2012. Um, built up a practice there, started to build up a practice in the U.S., but they were looking in 2018 to re, re, to kind of further grow their U.S. practice. Um, um, and they had just brought on, um, you know, someone, uh, a man who eventually became my boss, who had then uh, been, been the, the chief privacy officer at City. Um, and I was, I had actually applied for a position in their London office. So this is a funny story about interviewing. Um, that, that the recruiter had reached out, had reached out to me and said, you know, they're looking for someone that, with your experience to go to London. Um, I said, okay, I wasn't sure quite yet if I wanted to move to London at that time, just for some for some reason, uh, some various professional, personal reasons. But um, I, I went in for the interview just to be able to talk to the guys, um, and uh, it was a wonderful interview. But about halfway through, they kept on, um, um, you know, mentioning the U.S. practice. Now this is what we're doing over here. And I finally had to just kind of stop them and say, um, "Hey guys, um, um, I, I just want to make clear. I thought this position is this position still for a or the opportunity in London." Um, and one of them smiled and said, "Well, actually, we'd be willing to consider you for both. Um, you know, you're, you you live here. Um, there's a good opportunity. You know, we think there's a good opportunity. We're just regrowing our London office. We just our U.S. practice. We just hired a new head of the head of the office." Um, I said, no, actually, right now, an opportunity in the U.S. would actually be a bit of a, uh, of a better fit for me. Um, and so um, I went into the interview not quite sure what was thinking that this was, you know, eh, you know, I'll, I'll meet them. I'll see what they have to say. Leaving that first interview saying, OK, I actually think I'd like to work with these guys and had a couple more interviews. And I started there in June 2018. Um, by then, IB, IBM had acquired Promontory at the end of 2016. Um, but um, the idea being that um, um, they would leverage some of the kind of the financial regulatory experience that and privacy experience that a lot of people are had, we'd be able to partner together um, in, with in engagements, particularly with some of the technology and kind of you know, the tool AI tools, Watson tools that IBM was developing. Um, but we were you know, a pretty, you know, we got more integrated into the IBM infrastructure during while I was there. But um, we still were have, have had at least when I, I just left a few months ago through my time there an amount of autonomy, and I think that goes to kind of the, you know, the respect that Promontory has among a lot of financial institutions and in, in that industry in terms of in terms of the work that we do. So I was there for just about uh, four years. 
Oh, so now let's transition to where you're at uh, currently. Just a few months ago, you switched to uh, to work at VDO. So uh, talk about that transition and uh, your new job. Yeah, I, I had not been necessarily looking, um, but obviously I think COVID and this great resignation threw, you know, a bunch of things um, to the wind in terms of kind of, you know, the job moves that people were making. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I remember speaking to a couple of former colleagues last year and, you know, thinking, well, maybe I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure yet what I want to do. Um, and they said, you know, um, well, you know, it'd be stupid not to at least be looking around right now, um, just given, um, um, you know, kind of the amount of particularly the, the ability be to be able to, you know, put yourself in a, in a position, in a position of advantage if you're looking for a salary bump right now. Um, and I, um, so you'd be stupid not to be at least, you know, looking around and seeing what else is out there. Um, you know, I, I, I had enjoyed my time at Promontory, um, but there had been some changes and some people had left during COVID, uh, you know, for similar reasons, or they were, had made life changes, they had made some career changes. Um, and it, it was also just an opportunity for me, I think, in thinking about my career, um, IBM being a, you know, Promontory being a part of IBM, which is a publicly held company, um, given the more and more responsibility I was getting from a business development perspective, I wanted to be able to move back into a privately held company where at least I could put, be able to put myself on a path for, uh, for, for partnership, something I just would not have the opportunity to, to do at, uh, at Promontory IBM. Um, and so that was, you know, motivator for my move. Um, I, I would, you know, was looking at a few different places um, and just had a few conversations with people at BDO um, and ended up, uh, um, Ended up really, uh, really enjoying it. And ended up thinking this is a good group of people, and these are people I'd like to be able to work with. Interesting. Now, talk about uh, what you're what you're doing there uh, for the past few months. Uh, sure. I, I mean, very similar to the type of work I've been doing at Promontory and even at Deloitte. There's a lot right now um, in terms of um, um, in terms of obviously privacy compliance issues. Um, companies are still trying to figure out how they have to comply with GDPR. <laughs> um, um, and then you have some of the pending state laws uh, that'll be going into effect next year. Well, California is already gonna be in effect that CPRA goes into effect next January, as does Colorado and Virginia. Um, there's some debate, there's some debate going on right now about the federal privacy law. We'll see what happens with that. So again, we really don't provide legal services, but we provide compliance type services. Um, and you know, helping companies understand how their current privacy programs are um, aligning to to different regulations. So we'll go in, we'll you know, do a bunch of review a bunch of documents um, for a, a random company, set up a bunch of interviews to talk with people who are either in kind of in that in that second line, you know, privacy office, general counsel, chief security officer, anyone who has a you know kind of a role to play in the, in the collection and processing of personal data. Um, and then, um, you know, also people within the first line, people, people really responsible in the business units for, for the, for the collection of that data, um, and get an understanding of how their privacy programs are currently structured. Do you have notices in place? What do you have in place to allow for data subject access requests? Um, what, what are your, does your policy, uh, privacy policies look like, um, and then come up with essentially, you know, a series of uh, recommended um, areas for remediation um, based off any finding 
findings that we that we know for them. Um, another area of work is privacy program management and governance, working with companies to build out and enhance um, certain types of, uh, uh, of privacy offices. Um, uh, you know what we call governance structures. A lot of companies still don't have chief privacy officers, so we'll go in take a look at what they have, which in some cases may be nothing, and then come up with a recommended organizational structure, roles and responsibilities, a racy matrix to actually help them build out that governance structure. Um, also doing a, you know, something we provide is work around DPO as a service, where we are a, uh, can be a company's designated data protection officer under the GDPR and help them fulfill those responsibilities around um, as a, to be a, um, um, a, a DPO um, to be able to do those annual reports and have those kind of be that independent voice to kind of help them guide and steer their privacy program. Um, also some work around privacy tech uh, implementation. We have a lot of companies right now looking at, well, OneTrust and TrustArc, um, but they, you know, they don't understand how to implement it and they don't understand what they may need and what they don't need and how you integrate current practices within the larger use of the tool. So we will uh, you know, provide services to help work with, in some cases, partnering with those companies with, with implementation of the tools. So a, a wide variety of issues. Um, I mean, this is, uh, um, and, you know, with new technologies, artificial intelligence, cloud, now crypto, um, they also come with sorts of issues, all sorts of issues where there were their own ramifications for privacy. So any uh, um, anything that involves collection of data requires some sort of, uh, some sort of privacy policy or procedure. So lot, lot, lots going on right now. <laughs> Interesting. You know, in the compliance world, uh, as you mentioned, it's important to have a general idea of what the company's doing with their data and to have at least some idea of a, a data map. Talk about, is that difficult to, to get that being on the, on the outside looking in? Um, it, it, it can be. Um, it, it honestly depends sometimes how we work with other companies. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, you know, a company is paying us for us to do a job for them. And if we can't do their job for them, then uh, can't do that for them, then that's, uh, you know, a, a waste of their effort. So, um, you, we, we, you know, generally clients are very understand the importance of privacy and they're, um, uh, um, they're very, um, uh, um, you know, they want to um, they want to get a better understanding of the data that they're being collected uh, for regulatory purposes, for risk management purposes. Um, so sometimes it's just a matter of locating the data um, and understanding the processing activities that are happening, what, how the data is getting collected within, within um, um, you know, within the bank or the pharmaceutical company. And so usually it's really just understanding why that data, is, you know, what those activities are. Once we can identify those activities and those stakeholders, then it's pretty easy for us to be able to have those interviews and understand the types of personal data that's being collected and processed, um, how it's being shared, uh, you know, what what technologies you're using. But really, the sometimes with very large companies, it can be hard to for you know even the people who bring us in for for them to have an understanding of of, of what those <laughs> how data is being used. Interesting. You know, for for people that. Uh are maybe thinking about consulting in, in law school now or starting out their careers. Talk about, you know, is it worthwhile sort of going the traditional law firm route first? I know you jumped right into to consulting. Um, yeah, I guess just talk about that, that uh, as far as the career map, uh, was that the right thing to do, you think, jumping straight in? 
you know, it, it was, mine was an interesting story. I, um, you know, I, I think probably for anyone getting a year to practicing law as a lawyer would be beneficial, um, if at least for no other reason than the, you know, financial reasons and the, the cost of law school tuition, which is, you know, I thought was high when I went to law school 2007 to 2010. Um, um, it, it looks like it's gone up, you know, if not double, but pretty close to that since, since then. Um, so there, there's a benefit to being a first year associate, a first uh, a law, an associate in a law firm, even strictly, even if you hate it strictly from a financial perspective, just to be able to help you with some of those loans, uh, maybe maybe the first couple of years out, uh, but also to get that experience, but, uh, you know, get that experience, understand, you know, you, you went to three years for, for school and, you know, it may not, uh, you know, what, to, for what, 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 what do those people do? But uh, I've never had any regrets in terms of how my career has turned out. It's taken twists and turns. Um, I've been very proud of the work that I've done and you know, kind of how I've been able to, you know, transition and grow and, and enhance my career. Um, you know, being in a law firm is not for everyone also. And so, um, um, you know, if, if you can make it work um, and, you know, you, you want to maybe look at something a little different, doesn't have to be just consulting. It could be, you know, go, go being a government attorney or, um, or going to work for a trade association, um, then you should certainly do it. I know, I know people who started off as in law firms and left after a year or two and have not gone back. Um, I know a couple people who um, uh, went straight, took a little bit more of a circular route, went either into government or went to a trade association, and uh, three or four jobs later, they end up at a, at a law firm. So it's uh, um, I, I've been fortunate, particularly that I look at the people who I graduated with and kind of the you know, my closer friends within my alumni circle, people who were a few years ahead of me, a few years behind me. Everyone's taken all sorts of circular careers. Um, I, I think kind of that's been one of the benefits of going to school in in, in DC, where you, I think you do see a little bit more of that than than maybe you do, um, um, you know, kind of in other big cities with with a lot of law schools. Interesting. You know, working in privacy consulting, do you get to see a lot of uh, just in general business practices outside of strictly privacy work? You know, are you seeing sort of how the the sausage is made? And I guess talk about that. Is that uh, rewarding or um, fulfilling to to see sort of different things happening in the business aside from strictly, you know, GDPR uh, compliance. Yeah, I mean, what do you, I'm trying to get I guess, are you, are you able to see, you know, sort of product development or other types of uh, business development happening outside of, pri outside of strictly privacy uh, compliance as a yeah, I mean, I, I engage with some of our, particularly within the firms I've worked with, with some of our security teams, with some of our financial regulatory teams. So I've gotten an understanding of kind of how, you know, some of the issues around that, about why, you know, clients may bring in those practices and the firm and the firm, um, the way those firms serve, the way, um, you know, my firms have served those clients. Um Certainly within clients themselves, you know, when you talk about product development, um, I, I've got an understanding of, you know, how different companies are maybe, you know, the, the, trying to understand the prime for the privacy implications of new products that they're developing. Um, so I've got, you know, been able to get in a lot of inside practice, you know, inside you know, a lot of knowledge about, um, you know, how other companies are run and, you know, the tools that they're using um, to be able to be able to kind of grow their to be able to grow their enterprise. So, yeah. Interesting.
Now, uh, looking forward, uh, what do you see, I guess, in the in the privacy compliance space? And then also uh, for you yourself, where do you see yourself uh, fitting in there? What's uh, what's next for you, Jeremy? Um, I mean, I, I think privacy from a compliance perspective, it's only going to get more complicated over the next several years. Um, there will either be a federal privacy bill, um, which will probably lead to a, an FTC rulemaking, which could then lead to some sort of court challenge. Um, none of that will happen all overnight. Or you're going to see, right now we're up to five state privacy bills. I would not, I would be surprised to, I think the COVID um, led to, you know, maybe state legislatures holding off on privacy for a year or two, but I would not be surprised to see that five number um, double or even triple over the next few years um, or even go higher. Um, I, I think you're going to see more states try to figure out how they, if the federal government is not going to step in, they're going to realize that they're going to have to get a better handle on, on, on this issue in, in terms of how they want to regulate it. Um, certainly private, I think there are going to be more, there's going to be more technology developed in terms of how um, companies can manage their privacy programs. Um, I, I think that's an opportunity for firms like mine to, in order to get into, you know, get knowledge in new areas of how, how to work with companies to help implement that type of technology. Um, um, how, what are the privacy implications of things like, you know, crypto and, uh, um, um, and NFTs and, um, and, and, uh, and artificial intelligence. Um, any, any type of new activity involving the, the processing of data will have privacy implications for it. Um, as for me, I, I hope to, you know, obviously continuing to be able to, you know, work to understand these issues and be able to kind of, you know, grow my footprint here and help us uh, expand our services here at BDO. So that's uh, that's that's my long term right now. Great, great. Now, my last question for you is uh, for folks listening to this, thinking about how they can become uh, the next Jeremy Berkowitz, talk a little about, you know, some of the steps you've taken, um, some of the maybe the people you've interacted with or, or just, uh, you know, the, the, the all the steps along the way that have really propelled you uh, to get to where you are. I mean, I would I would encourage people not to become the next Jeremy Berkowitz. I would encourage them to become themselves, um, and that's a really interesting point. I, I think uh, I think it's important. Well, one building a good professional network um, is important. Um, I, I think you you want to, particularly even DC can be a pretty small place at times. Um, and I found you know I've been down here almost eighteen years now. I'm still bumping into people. Um, who I worked with in 2004. I'm still, you know, law school classmates of mine who have become clients or colleagues of mine, or people who I first met, you know, maybe in my first job who, you know, uh, you know, have become potential clients over time. You bump into the same people over and over again, particularly in this, in the telecom and now private and now privacy field. So, you know, being able to build that network, um, being able to, you know, stay in touch with people. I, I'd say also you can't be friends with everyone. But you, you want a large circle, but you also want a smaller circle also. You, I, you know, finding four or five people who, um, you know, you can um, rely on and to, you know, kind of provide you with that honest career advice who can be advocates on your behalf. 
Um, so you, you want that almost that kind of you, you want your own personal kitchen cabinet um, in, in terms of the uh, providing, you know, knowing that you have mentors um, out there who, you know, will, will give you honest advice, who will try and help you, um, who can be there for, you know, just as sounding boards, you know, not everyone will be able to do that for you. But if you can find those few people who can um, and, and over a long period of time, then, then that's important. Um, uh, you know, I'd say also be, be flexible, be willing to try new things. Um, um, you know, trying, uh, you want to draw limits around kind of what you want to do in your life. And, you know, there's sometimes a line where we're working, you know, we're working personal lives have to be drawn, but, you know, not to be afraid to, you know, take new opportunities or where if you get an offer to, you know, kind of go meet someone or attend something. And, you know, even after it's a long day of work, um, it's, uh, you never know what might happen and that's happened you know the chance opportunities have turned into uh <laughs> have turned into larger things um over time or you, or you meet someone who you know may not make an impression right now but you you meet them again in four or five years and it turns into something larger so uh, you know try to particularly as you're younger try to take advantage of those larger opportunities um and, and then just keep learning um you know you don't, you don't stop being a student when you graduate um yeah, there, there is a reason why a lot of our associations have, you know, continuing education requirements. Um, stay fresh in what's out there, not just from a legal perspective, but also a technology perspective um, um, and, from a, and from a practice perspective as well. Um, I, I, I'd say it's funny because you know, just to go back to your point, you know, being the next Jeremy Berkowitz you brought up, I, I'd say, I think sometimes we meet people who are, you know, the, their personalities are so open and welcoming. And you're, you think that you want to be that person um, and you want to try to model yourselves after that. And I think it's good to have mentors like that and, you know, goals and you want, you want to try to, you know, better yourself. Um, I'd say you're most effective when you are in front of a client, if clients can, you know, detect that if you're, if you're honest, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're honest, if you're genuine, um, that, that's where you build up that trust. And not everyone has, you know, kind of these large outgoing personalities. Um, not everyone can always be the funniest in the room or, you know, can kind of, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, rattle thing, you know, you know, kind of rattle a bunch of facts off. Um, and I think when we try to become something that we're not ourselves, um, you lose a little bit of that genuinity, genuinity, um, kind of that, that honesty. So yes, it's always good to improve yourself. It's always good to learn. It's it'll learn, you know, both from a, I think kind of a factual point of view, learn how you can be a more effective advocate, whether you're a lawyer or consultant on, on, on behalf of your clients, but, um, don't try to try to do it in a way that, you know, is true to who you are as a person, because, um, clients or colleagues, I think they respect honesty and they respect people who are, who are, who are, who are genuine the most. And you, you will do your best when you're genuine. Yeah, that's uh, great advice. Uh, and uh, with that, be who you, you know, stay true to uh, who you are. And thank you so much, Jeremy, for, for joining the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me, Noah.